So we've been in a, a series of talks. So we've been in this a great conversation about the saga of the Lost Ark, not the not the saga that we see in Hollywood, but the actual Lost Ark in the Bible. And um, uh, today we're going to see how it got unlost, or at least for a while it was unlost. It was unlost uh, in today's in today's um, a reading. We see how it was returned to Israel, and then for four hundred years they managed to hold on to it. And then we're gonna we're gonna pick up the the story next week and kind of wrap it up in the next two weeks. As we see, there's still a few more things we can pick up from the from the ark, but it does get lost ultimately, and now no one knows where it is unless it's in a box in a warehouse somewhere with top men looking into it. So, so we're going to be we're going to be seeing the way that the ark got unlost. And I was looking at this passage, and we see that when the Philistines decided to return it. If, if you weren't here last week, you can you can catch up online. Uh, but what happened in chapter 5 is that God convinced them that they really did want to return the ark to his people, that they had had it, and God convinces them over a period of some time that they need to return it. They ultimately say, all right, I give up, I tap out. How can I return this box to God's people? So that's the place where we're picking it up. But they ask themselves, should I have a guilt offering with it? What what do we do for a guilt offering? And that phrase jumps out to me. You know, one of the things that churches are often accused of, Christians are often described as being people who are all about guilt, that, that I can't go with you to church this weekend because I've got enough guilt and shame in my life. I don't want any more. All they're going to do if I go to church is talk to me about things that make me feel guilty. And um, I don't know... If that's been your experience, I don't know what your stories all are, what your experience of Christianity and church is, but that's really not been mine. Um, uh, when I was when I was on your side of the pulpit, when I was sitting in the pew, I didn't go to churches that talked a lot about guilt, and I haven't talked that much about guilt in the in the messages I've preached as your pastor. So I'm not sure who who it is who does that. Maybe it should be me. Maybe I'm the one who's at fault here, and now I have one more thing to feel guilty about because. I should talk more about guilt. I don't know. But, but, uh, in, in fact, I don't see a lot of talk about guilt, but, but that phrase jumped out at me, a guilt offering, the trespass, the idea that, that the church somehow should be talking more about guilt. And that got me thinking about guilt. You know, I think, I think a lot of us, I think everyone knows what guilt is. And I think a lot of us kind of wonder where does that start? I was, I was thinking to myself, where do my guilty feelings come from? You know, uh, and I was thinking, you know, I can remember things I did that were wrong when I was a kid. But the things I can remember as a kid are the ones that I was punished for, that my parents taught me not to do that. You know, I stole some money from my mom's purse once, and I learned not to do that. So I don't really have any real sense of guilt about it. You know, it was the wrong thing to do, but I learned not to do that. And so I was corrected, and so I don't have a lot of guilt about that. But it's when I get older, and I did things that were not punishable, or or more to the point, they weren't fixable. That's the things, when I start thinking about what are my earliest memories of guilt, like the, the, the one that I came up with, the earliest one I can think of, is a conversation I had when I was in high school. As a bunch of me and my nerdy friends, we were, we were together, and I said something that was despicable. It was, it was just contemptible. There was nothing good that I can comment on what I said. And my friends kind of, you know, they took that in. But one of them, unlike the rest of us, he had a girlfriend and she was there. 
And she rolled her eyes and walked out. And I realized what I had said. And for 30 years, whenever I think of that circumstance, whenever I think of that woman, whenever I think of anything related to that, I'm overcome with shame. I'm overcome with the guilt of having done something, and I can make excuses about why it was, you know, why I thought it was a good idea, but I mean, I knew it was wrong immediately. But there was nothing I could do to fix it. You know, I, I did apologize to my friends, but she was done with me. I never, I never got within speaking distance of her again the rest of high school. And I thought about it a lot over the next 30 years, but at our 30th high school reunion a couple of years ago, I bumped into her, and the first words out of my mouth were, I feel so bad about what I said that time. And she knew what I was talking about. And she, she said, well, you know, it's okay, you know, it's not a big deal, you know, the things you say. But just the other day, just the other day, she liked a picture of mine on Facebook. And I thought to myself, you know, if I could somehow just get rid of that. I wish there was some way, you know, I, I've received forgiveness, but I wish I could make it go away, you know. And, and that's what I wish. And, and there are other things I could pick on, but that's the first one I can remember. The first really big, you, you just blew it. And you just wish you could somehow fix it. And my guess is I'm not alone. My guess is a lot of you can think of things like that in your own lives. The time that you just, just blew it and you wish you could somehow fix it. You think of that weekend. Or you think of that business with the money and you know, you repaid most of it and you never got caught. Or you think about the thing at work, the thing that's still going on at work. Or maybe, maybe you're thinking about your first marriage. Or maybe you're thinking about your kids from your first marriage. And you just wish there was some way that you could make that better. That there was something you could do to fix that. But you can't. That's the nature of these things. Is that you, you, you can maybe fix it 90%, 95%. But there's always going to be that, that blemish. It's always going to be a little bit wrong. That even our best efforts to make things better, we can't quite fix it. Well, like a, a car fender, you know, you can, you can, you, you get into a fender bender and, and your fender is bent and you can pound on that fender and you can get it almost straight, but never quite right. So you put the bondo on and you sand it smooth and you paint it and you hope it's as good as new, but you know it's not. And I think a lot of us have things in our life, you know, the weekend or, or the spring break, we, where we just say, I wish I could just, just not do that. I wish I, I wish I could have a do-over. I wish I could go to Denmark. But I can't. I can't set foot in Denmark. We have things like that. And if you felt that way, if, you ever, if there's any part of your life where you can say, that's really my story. I've got that exact situation. There is great news in the Scripture, because obviously we're not the first people who've ever felt that way. There's great news in the Scripture. And if you're wondering, it's not, no, it's no big deal. Forget about it. Move on. There's better news than that in the Scripture. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage from the uh, Scriptures. You know, if you're a person of faith... It's even worse. If you're, if you're, if you're just a, an atheist, if you're a modern day secular humanist, um, you kind of figure you know, your life is what you make of it, and when you die, you're gone, and that's the end of it. Guilt can be hard, but you kind of do the best you can, and you figure, well, that's the best I can do. 
But if you're a person of faith, not even necessarily the faith of the Bible, even if you're just, just believe in kind of a, a moral arc to the universe, if you believe that what goes around comes around, if you believe in karma, if you believe that there is some cosmic justice in the universe, then you have all the more reason to be afraid because you know that the books aren't balanced. You know you've done something. You know there's no way to fix it. Your best efforts aren't enough to fix it. And if you believe in the God of the Bible, it's even worse because you know you've harmed one of God's children. You've offended God personally. So what do you do to make things right with God? How do you, how do you, you can't even fix it with a human. How can you fix it with God? If you've ever felt that, that is what scripture we're looking at today. Because as we saw last week, the Philistines got in trouble with God. And they're trying to figure, how do I make it right with God? What can I do to make things right with God? So they say, uh, so we, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And we saw some of that last week. Um, it says seven months. Now, for us, that means one month less than eight months. But for people in Bible times, the number seven has a special significance. And if you ask them, was it really actually, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven months, they might say, you're missing the point. It wasn't that it was seven months. It might have been. But it was the right number of months. It was enough months. It was how long it took for God to convince them to let the ark go. It was the right number of months. It was it was the significant fulfillment of months that it took for the Philistines to decide, I have to tap out. I can't go on. We have to do something about this. So eventually, they get to the place where they say, we have to return this. But they're saying, well, what do I do? Do I say, Put it in a cart and send it home. Just no, no blood, no foul, no hard feelings. Well, I know how I'd feel if it was me. So they say, we better talk to somebody who's good with God's stuff. So they hire a consultant. It says, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we should send with it to its place. And unwittingly, they make their problem worse. Because, you see, God doesn't like divination. In fact, if the Philistines had been Israelites, they would have known that divination was forbidden by God. We have a verse here um, uh, in Deuteronomy 19, I think. No one shall be found among you who makes a son or daughter pass through fire or who practices divination or is a soothsayer or an augur or a sorcerer. God doesn't want people dabbling in the occult, so God forbids it to his people. And these people, their first step, they're saying, we have to make things right with God. How can we do this? Their first step is to make it worse. They've compounded their problem. So they can't, they can't solve their problem. Uh, later on in this, in this scripture, we read, um, in, uh, 1 Samuel, sorry, you had it there. Um, the first king of Israel is King Saul. And God speaks to him and tells him through a prophet, says, rebellion, what God, what, what Samuel has done, Saul has done, um, is no less a sin than divination. It's as bad as divination. So people who are Israelites know how bad divination is. The Philistines have already, in the process of trying to get square with God, they've already made things worse because they consulted a diviner. So they've got a real problem now. Now we might say, well, you know, how did they know? How did they know? Well, they didn't know. I mean, but ignorance is no excuse, right? You try that, I didn't know, and see how far that gets you. 
Their whole goal here is to make things right with God, and the first thing they do is to make things worse. So they go on. It says, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed and be ransomed. Will not then his turn, his hand turn from you? And they say, well, what should we send? And they say, five gold tumors and five gold mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. So we heard last week about the tumors. Uh, people speculate because of the mice here. Now we hear about mice. We think maybe there might have been a plague, of, a bubonic plague or something like that. The mice had fleas, and the fleas infected the people, and they had buboes or tumors. Um, and that there's some kind of a, a very primitive magical thinking that if we send them away, you know, God's not too bright. He doesn't know why we're, we're feeling guilty. But if we give him little tokens made of gold, A, he'll be, we'll bribe him with the gold, and B, he'll know what we're talking about because he's not too bright. Um, so there's this kind of primitive thinking about God that we can sort him out, kind of making sure he's under, aware of what we're doing. So we're going to send him gold mice and gold tumors. And so they uh, they do that. And then in verse 6 it says, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he, God, had made fools of them, did they not let the people go and they departed? So they say, I'm not too clear on all the details of the Israelites. I don't know all their story, but I've heard about the business with Egypt. I heard about the the Exodus and how God eventually uh, sorted out the Egyptians. And we don't want to be like them. Let's send the, these golden mice and these golden tumors with with the ark. And it's a shame they, they only heard that much because if they'd heard just another couple of chapters from the Exodus story, they would have heard what happened when the Israelites were let go and they went out to Mount Horeb and Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law and the people of God stayed at the base of the mountain and they made themselves a golden calf. That they have already heard that God says no graven images and they make a graven image. So they're just digging their hole deeper and deeper and deeper. So the diviners tell them, here's what you do. You want to make sure that this works. You, you can't just like speculate here. You, you know, Let's make sure this works. They come up with a test. They say, get some milk cows. They've never pulled a cart before. They don't know that if you push into it, you know, if you lean in, then eventually it will start rolling. right? So they don't know how carts work. They're just milk cows. And he says, oh, and by the way, take their calves away from them so that they will want to stay here. They will be in distress. They won't want to go anywhere with their calves gone. So hook them up to a wagon, take their calves away, and if they still go to Israel, then you'll know that God is involved in this. So they come up with a test to figure out, is this really God's doing or not? And of course, that's the next thing they get wrong. The scriptures tell us um, that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Oh, wait, that's the idol. Don't make idols. Um, but the next, the next one uh, says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's a key verse of Scripture. Jesus himself quotes it. You do not put God to the test. You do not tell God, how do I know I can trust you? That's something God doesn't like to hear. Funny. So the, the Philistines are trying to get square with God, but everything they do makes it worse. Every single step the Philistines do only makes things worse. You know, they tell us when you're in a hole, step one is to quit digging. But the Philistines can't figure out how to quit digging. All they can do is make their problem worse. The questions the Philistines have is the questions a lot of us have, which is, how can I fix this? What 
can wash away my sin. You know, there's a worse problem than this. There's, there's the fact that the Philistines keep breaking the rules. But beyond that, there's a separate problem. A perfect God has a standard of perfection. So if your goal is to kind of pay God back, it's like, yes, I messed up over here, Lord, but I will pay you back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix that. I'm gonna overexceed in this area. And then you can take some of the credit here and apply it to my account over there and it'll balance out. But if God demands perfection, you can never do better than perfection. You can't possibly earn some credit to apply to the deficit side of the ledger. So what do you do? What can wash away my sin? Well, you just heard, you just sang the song that tells us the answer. We can't possibly save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to erase that blot on the ledger. So God did it for us. God sent a Savior. Now, I know some pastors are more comfortable importing the New Testament into the Old Testament. I'm always a little leery that I want to make sure that I let the Old Testament speak for itself. And there's not a word in here about Jesus. There's nothing in this passage that tells us about Jesus. But there is a perfect description of the problem that Jesus came to solve. The problem of finding yourself on the wrong side with God and wondering, what can I do that will not make it worse? How can I, how can I fix what I've done? How can I get out of this hole I've dug for myself? And the answer is, we need a savior. But there's one more place where this passage points to Jesus. Uh, some of you were, were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the, the description of the ark. And in Exodus 25, there's a, there's a description of the ark and it says it's a box and it's got little rings on the side and there's poles that go through it. And on those poles, the, the, the Levites would carry it on their poles. It's uh, on these poles. You shall put poles into the rings on the side of the ark by which to carry the ark. And uh, back up uh, one. So we've just heard what happened. The Philistines put the put the ark in the cart and sent it off. God invisibly goaded those uh, those uh, cows, and it went straight, neither to the left or the right. Went all the way to I- Israel. Everything's fine with the cart and the ark in it. But look what happens one book from now in Second Samuel six. Uzzah and Ahio. The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. This is when David is trying to bring the cart, uh, the Ark of God into Jerusalem. So they're driving a new cart with the Ark of God in it, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, and God struck him there. God said, I told you to carry it on the poles. You put it in the cart, it's going to tip over, you're going to try and steady it, and you're going to die. That's what they deserved. But the Philistines didn't get what they deserved. The Philistines got what they didn't deserve. They got grace. God is not out to balance the books. God is not trying to get even with you. God is a God of grace. And the reason he provides a Savior is because he wants us not to be guilty. He wants us to be acquitted. God wants to wash away our sin. So... 
What do you do about that thing? The, you know, the thing you were thinking of earlier. The thing at work. The thing with the money. The relationship, the marriage. What do you do about that thing you can't get rid of? What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, it baffles me why churches are viewed as repositories of guilt when what we should be is a repository of forgiveness. The good news that God loves us, that God wants to be in a relationship with us so much that he overlooks the way we put the cart, the ark on the cart, the way we consult the diviners, the way we build golden images. God overlooks all that because God wants to be in relationship with us. Can we be the kind of church, can we as Christians be the kind of people who communicate that picture of God, a God who longs to be in relationship with people, a God who does not keep a record of our rights and our wrongs, but washes away our sin? Are we going to have consequences? You know, maybe you can't ever step foot in Denmark. Maybe you have some music to face. But as you go through it, remember, you have a God who loves you so much, he sent his son to connect you back to him, to live and die and be raised so you could have a relationship with God forever. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that these things that are in our minds, the things that are on our hearts, the terrible things we said, the way we behaved, the things we've tried to fix, the things we spent seven months trying to figure out, is there some way we can solve this problem? And despite our best efforts, they're still there. It still lingers. It comes back to us. We remember it. We hear the name of the town. We hear the name of the workplace. We hear the name of the person. We remember. We give you thanks, Lord, that you have provided a Savior to do what we could not. To live for us, to die for us, to reconnect us back to you. To be raised so that we might have eternal life. We give you thanks, Lord, and we pray that as we face the music, as we deal as badly as we as we sometimes do with our sin, to know that if we cannot find forgiveness here, we have already have it in Christ. We pray you'd give us courage to trust you and trust the blood of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.